Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Well, this morning I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as we continue... Uh, looking at the genealogy of Jesus. The past several weeks we've been looking at Matthew's genealogy and in particular focusing on the women that Matthew draws our attention to by his inclusion of them in this genealogy. Today we will be looking at the fourth woman mentioned, Bathsheba, as we consider Christmas for the bereaved. Now, Christmas is normally the time of year when we would really rather not think about death. We like the bright and shining lights, the gifts with pretty ribbons, the joyful songs, all the holly jolly stuff, right? That's what we like. That's what we enjoy. But when we really stop to think about it, it is impossible to separate Christmas from that most woeful human experience of death. For some of you, this is sadly going to be your first Christmas experiencing a new bereavement. There are wives who have lost husbands this year. There are children who have lost parents. There are brothers and sisters who have lost siblings, dear friends that have recently departed. Even in the past few weeks, it seems like we have been overwhelmed with a spate of those that we love passing away. There have been funerals, far too many For my liking, my own family will be navigating those waters as this is the first Christmas that we'll have without my father-in-law. For some of us, though, this isn't our first Christmas. Perhaps we've spent many Christmases without a particular loved one, and yet the sting of death, the weight of their absence still overwhelms. Their absence is a presence all its own that hangs over our celebrations like a cloud. And even though we would rather not have death become an intruder in our festivities, it's there nonetheless, reminding us of their absence. And often it's heightened, the the sense of loss is heightened and renewed during this season when we would like to be celebrating with them. Even in this very sanctuary, as you look around, we have reminders of death. The poinsettias that we use to decorate are often placed in memory of a loved one that has gone on before. So even in their beauty and magnificence, we are reminded that they represent someone who is no longer with us. But beyond just missing the ones that we love because of their absence during this holiday, Christmas exists To remind us that even though death is an ever-present intruder in our lives, it is not permanent. It is not lasting. It has been defeated. And that is the lesson that we learn by looking at the fourth woman included in Jesus' genealogy, Bathsheba. So then if you are able, would you please stand together with me as we read Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. There we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's once more turn to the Lord in prayer. God, we are so grateful. So grateful to be gathered here today, reminded of your great love for us, even as we've heard these songs reminding us of what it took to bring your son into the world, being born through Mary in Bethlehem. And yet, Lord, we know that that was only the culmination of your plan. That stretching back generations and generations, there is an ongoing, never-ceasing plan in place to bring your Son into the world. Lord, today we consider Bathsheba and her role in bringing that plan to culmination. And as we do, we long to see how our most hateful enemy, death, is defeated through Jesus' coming. Lord, we come here today, perhaps with new griefs, perhaps with old griefs that we have not thought about during this Christmas season. And yet, Lord, they're always there just under the surface, reminding us of the loss that we've experienced. Lord, I pray that even as we grieve, and rightfully so, grieve the loss of loved ones, That you would help us, Lord, to see the hope that we have through Christ Jesus of overcoming death. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I said at the beginning that Bathsheba is the fourth woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy after Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. However, you may have noticed as we read through the text, 
In the midst of all those names, the Jeconiahs and Jehoshaphats and all those, you didn't hear Bathsheba's name mentioned. However, you did see a strange phrase in verse 6, that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now that is Bathsheba. That's who we're talking about this morning. But why is it? Why does Matthew include her in this way? Why doesn't he just say that David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba? It's the only person in the genealogy that he mentions in this way. But I think this inclusion is very intentional. I think he phrases it this way because he wants to remind us of three realities of Bathsheba's situation, of her story. The first is that she was married to a foreigner. We're told that it was that she was the wife of Uriah. Now Uriah, when you go back into the Old Testament and you study about Uriah, you find that he was one of David's mighty men. He was one of his most trusted and valiant warriors. He was a man of upright character, a man who refused to, to, to experience the comforts that his soldiers out in the field were not able to experience. And yet, for all of his positive attributes, Uriah was not a Jew. We're told in the Old Testament that Uriah was a Hittite, which means that he actually belonged to one of the groups that the Jews were supposed to utterly destroy from the promised land whenever they went in and conquered. His people were a condemned people. And yet, Uriah and his family had, like Rahab and like Ruth, who we considered last week, united himself to the people of God and to the king to the point that he had become one of David's most trusted servants. He had gone from being an outsider to being part of the royal household, just like Ruth. Now, throughout his genealogy, Matthew has emphasized the foreign nature of these women. So far, every woman that we've talked about so far has been a non-Jew, a foreigner. Now, Bathsheba herself may not have been a foreigner, but she was married to one. And so her inclusion in this way reminds us of the fact that she too, by virtue of her marriage, would have been considered in some way an outsider. Someone different, someone married to an outsider. Second though, her inclusion in this way, this phrase reminds us of the scandalous nature of her relationship with David. Because we might read this and we might say, well, if, if David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, what is going on there? Something doesn't add up, right? The... the How did she have a son with David if she was another man's wife? Well, when we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that while David's army, including Uriah, was out at battle, he observed Bathsheba and he sent his servants to her house and had her brought to the palace and took advantage of his role as king with her. And when she became pregnant as a result of this forbidden relationship, David had her husband killed in battle in order to get him out of the way and cover up his own sin. Which brings us to the third reason that she is included in this way. The third thing that Matthew wants to bring to our minds as we read through the genealogy of Jesus, it's the most important thing for our time this morning. 
By drawing attention to her husband, Matthew also reminds us of her husband's fate. He was dead. Slain by David, his king's own order. Bathsheba had been widowed by the king so that he could cover up his own sins. Now, like many of the other stories that we've already covered when we've talked about Tamar and Rahab and, and Ruth, you might be thinking, well, what a sordid tale. You know, what does this have to do with Christmas and jolly old St. Nicholas and sugar plums and snowballs and all those good things that we like to hear about? Well, not much. But I would suggest to you that it does have a lot to do with the real reason that Jesus came to the earth. And even the circumstances of his coming. Bathsheba's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy and therefore the Christmas story itself teaches us a few things that we need to understand about death and bereavement. And the very first thing it teaches us is that we cannot stop death. We cannot stop death. Death is our oldest and most hateful enemy. It has claimed as its victims every person that has ever lived. That is true. There's a couple of individuals that were called to heaven in the Bible under extraordinary circumstances. Yet the rule of life, the, the overwhelming, unbreakable rule of life for every human being, ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, has been death. Death is the only thing that we're assured of in this life. The old joke is death and taxes, right? The only two things you can be sure of. And death is unfortunately even more assured than taxes. Despite efforts by every single civilization to thwart death, death remains undefeated by humans. The Egyptians would mummify their kings and their loved ones in, in hopes that that would prepare them and preserve them for the afterlife. Greeks and Romans would build statues to their heroes so that after they passed from the earth, their memories would not fade from people's minds. And even today, even though we take all sorts of medications to preserve life, it still remains a minor miracle if anyone lives to be over a hundred. For all our sophistication and technological advances, there are still no solutions to thwarting death. We've come no nearer to solving this problem than any human ever has before. Some have suggested that in the future, we might be able to, to do such wild things as upload our consciousnesses to a vast network of computers so that our consciousness can survive, or perhaps freezing our bodies until a future date where a, a cure for death might be found or a cure for the disease that we're experiencing might be found. But I suggest that even if these efforts do come to something, they will be just as futile as the mummies in Egypt were at defeating death. Death is unstoppable. And Bathsheba's story reminds us of this. After David has her husband killed, sent to the front lines, and then has all the troops withdraw from him so that he will be slain in battle, he brings her to his palace where she then has the child that was born from this relationship. And afterward, as David sits on his throne feeling secure, feeling like he's gotten away with his sin, 
Nathan the prophet comes to confront David because of his sin, and he tells him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. He says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. We read in this that God's decree of death for the child was ultimately a result of David's sin. Just as all death is a result of man's rebellion against God. A result of the very first sin in which man and woman disobeyed God. And since that day, death has reigned on the earth over all mankind. David begged God for the life of the child. We see his behavior. He was the king and yet he fasted for an entire week. He would go and, and throughout the nights he would lay prostrate on the ground. But still, the child died. There are perhaps never no more fervent prayers offered to preserve the life of someone. And yet, they did not stop death. David was just as powerless to prevent the death of his own child as we are powerless to prevent ours. And now Bathsheba had been twice bereaved because of David's sin. First of her husband, and now of her child. Yet ultimately Bathsheba would not be the only one bereaved. As we remember the stories we've already considered, Tamar had been bereaved of a husband, so too had Ruth. And even when Jesus himself was born, an aura of death, surrounded what should have been a joyful occasion. When Jesus was taken to the temple shortly after His birth, the priest, Simeon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, proclaimed this word about Jesus to Mary. We're told in Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You may be thinking some blessing. Huh? Right? I mean, let's just... if, If you could have left that part out about the sword piercing through my own soul also, that would have been great, Simeon. But he warns her that her own soul would be pierced by a sword. She would have to witness... Her own beloved son, roughly handled, beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross of wood, murdered in horrific fashion before her own eyes. She was there. She witnessed all the events that took place with her son. She too would taste the bitter grief associated with death, which Bathsheba had experienced before her. Now, I know that there are Parents in this room that have buried children. And I cannot imagine a more terrible weight of grief 
And this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus had to come for us. For this very reason. Because death is all around us and we cannot stop it. In a world that is infected by sin, it is inevitable that parents will have to bury children. It is inevitable that we will be separated from those that we love most, sometimes very tragically, by death. Sometimes far too soon. And Jesus came to address this. He knew the many, including Bathsheba, that had felt the helplessness of this reality. He knew that His own mother would feel the helplessness of this reality. Just as many of you in this room have experienced, death cannot be stopped. And so as a result of this first truth, we come to a second truth. And that is that we should grieve death. We should grieve death. Bathsheba grieved the loss of her husband and her child. We're told in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And then likewise, in the next chapter, after her child died in 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. She needed to be comforted because she was grieving. We've already seen that David likewise grieved over the impending death of his son. We've seen that Mary would experience grief as she stood at the foot of her son's cross and watched his blood drip down, the very blood that was given to atone for her sins. But at Jesus' birth, there was yet another expression of inconsolable grief. We're told that after Jesus was born and the wise men had come to visit, they'd gone by Herod's palace to seek out this new king, and in a fit of jealous rage, Herod sought to destroy this child. And when it became clear to him, because the wise men didn't come back to his palace that the, 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 the trick was up, he decided that he would pour out his wrath on all the families in Bethlehem. So in Matthew chapter 2, we're told, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so even at Jesus' birth, as we sing the songs and as we put on our bright clothes and as we light the trees, we're reminded that in Scripture, rejoicing and death went hand in hand when our Savior arrived. Because He was coming to fight against death. To defeat death for us. And as He came to defeat death, death fought back. And death took all it could before ultimately being conquered by Him. And so indeed, grief of this nature is described here in God's Word at Jesus' birth. It is appropriate when we are confronted by death. We learn from the Bible that death is an intruder in God's good creation. Before death was brought into the world through Adam and Eve's sin, 
God had pronounced everything that he had made good and nothing died. Death was not present in that good state of creation. But now because of sin, death mars that good order. God created us to walk in harmony with Him and in harmony with His creation for all of eternity. And yet now our lives are limited to 80, maybe 90 years if we're lucky. Death is the just consequence of sin. Not that we experience our own death as a result of some personal sin that we've committed in particular, but because we live in a world so permeated by sin that even now every cell in our body is dying. As you said here this morning, what a pleasant thought right here on the eve of Christmas, right? As you said here this morning, you are dying. Every cell is deteriorating right now as you age. And praise God, He created us in a way so that our cells would regenerate and be replaced until one day they're not. And we too succumb to this hateful enemy. So yes, when we experience death, it is right for us to grieve. When death visits our household, when it visits the household of those that we love, we should grieve. We should weep. Because it's not what we were created for. Even when the people we love live a good long life. That's one way that we console ourselves. They lived a good long life. And yes, that's to be celebrated. But even so, death is still an intruder. Death is not our friend. We were not created to die. We were created in God's image to live and rule with Him, exercising dominion over all that He has made. And when death causes us to cease from that function, we should grieve it. Death is a tragedy. And it's a daily reminder that sin still holds sway over the world in which we live. But the Bible also tells us that even as we grieve, we do not have to grieve as those who have no hope. We do not have to grieve as though death is the end. Because praise God, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, death is not the end. And that brings us to our final point. We can overcome death. Now, this may seem to contradict what I said earlier, that we cannot stop death. And indeed, in our own power, no one has overcome death. Except for one person. Only one person has ever gone to the grave and emerged again triumphantly, never to visit it again. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Though the aura of death hung over even His birth, He knew that He had come to defeat death. To put an end to its power and into its hold forever. To break its power over us. To remove its sting and to vanquish it. Jesus came not just to die on the cross, but to rise again to eternal life. Defeating death and breaking its power forever. So that even though we all will have to face death ourselves one day if He doesn't come back before then. And we should prepare for it. And we should grieve those that we love when they pass from this life. 
Even though all those things are true, we do not have to despair. Because we know that now, because Jesus has risen from the dead, because He has defeated it, because He has broken its power, we do not have to fear it. We know that it is not permanent. When we commit our loved ones to the earth, when they have trusted in Christ, we know that they will one day too be resurrected just as Christ was. He is the first fruits of our promise of new life, of eternal life, of undiminished, undying, untainted by death life. Death now, though it's still a grievous enemy, is temporary for all those that trust in Jesus Christ. He defeated death for all of us by taking our sin on Himself and paying for it. So that now, even though the wages of sin is death, that is a wage, that is a payment that has already been made on our behalf. So that if you trust Jesus Christ, death has no power over you. You may succumb one day, there will come a day, if the Lord doesn't come back, when your heart will stop beating, your lungs will stop breathing, your eyes will close that will only be to you is for a moment. And the day that that happens, even though your physical bodies will still die, the moment that they do, our souls will be transported into the presence of the Lord if we have trusted in Him. That is our hope. And we were assured of it all throughout God's Word. In Isaiah 53, in speaking about the coming Savior, Isaiah tells us this in verse 4, Surely... He has borne our griefs. The griefs that you carry today because of the loved ones that are no longer with you. Jesus has borne those alongside you, with you, and for you. He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He he was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So listen to this. He was cut off. He was taken away. He was dead. He was put in the ground in a grave. And yet, what do we read? As we continue, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. 
Jesus took the death that we were due for our sin and He drank it down to the last drop. He took our death, our condemnation upon Himself and He paid the penalty for all of us. And yet, even here in Isaiah 53, we're told that the Lord will prolong His days. That He will see His offspring. Church, we are that offspring. We are those for whom He has paid. For those, those for whom He has died. This is the good news about Christmas. That Jesus has come to the earth, not just so that we can swap gifts and sing fun songs, but to solve our greatest problem, death. So that even when we are bereaved, even when we grieve, we can do so with hope. What's interesting about David and Bathsheba's story is that David, despite his own sin, he understood this resurrection reality. After he learned that his son had died, David said in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, he says, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. That is a hopeful declaration from David, knowing that one day he will see his son again. And so, while he grieved, justifiably so, he said, my days of fasting are over. I will go to my son one day. I will see him again. I will be reunited. And what was lost through death will be restored to me through the atoning work of my God. And so for those of you that are weighted with grief this Christmas season, hear these words of hope. We will miss our loved ones. Their absence from our homes and from our tables will be felt. It is right to grieve them. But you should also celebrate. You should feast like David in the knowledge that you cannot bring them back. But one day you will go to them. One day around God's table, you will be reunited with those who have passed before us having put their trust in Christ if we have likewise repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. And so that is why we celebrate. If we didn't understand the weight of death and the sting of death, our Christmas celebrations would seem trite and meaningless. But because we know what Jesus came to do, because we know that He came to defeat death, that is why we can sing. That is why we can rejoice. That is why we can celebrate with all of our might. It's why we can feast and gather together. Because death is defeated. Its sting is removed. And though we still will taste it, it will only be temporary for those that have trusted in Christ. We are free to celebrate even when we have been bereaved. Let's pray. God, we come before You today thanking You for the hope that we have in Christ. For the hope that death in all of its agony is only a temporary intruder in Your good creation. 
Lord, we long for the days when we will be restored, when Christ returns and death will be no more. And we will be given life everlasting. Lord, we long to see those that we love resurrected to incorruptible, glorious bodies. Lord, we long to be reunited with them. And I pray this morning for anyone here who might not yet have trusted in Christ Jesus. That if they do not have this hope, if they just have gone about their lives in wishful thinking in hopes that they might just somehow be good enough to somehow make it into your heaven, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to repent of that foolish and misplaced trust and instead trust in the one who is good enough, the only one who is good enough, who came to bear our sins, our griefs and our sorrows, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, today that they would turn from their sins and trust in you and come to know the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, give comfort to those who are grieving whose tears are still fresh on their cheeks from loved ones that have passed. Lord, let us look to the hope that we have in Christ. That though we cannot bring them back, we will one day go to be with them. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.